What's up, my friends? This is a round two podcast with Dr. Jim Fadiman, where we discuss the research that is hot off the press about the medical applications of psychedelics. Every major media outlet in the world is trying to get Dr. Fadiman's time right now, so I was very grateful that he took the time to sit down with me for a, mu- for a few minutes and talk about uh, this exciting new research. Um, it, it really is world-changing. If this is the first time that you are hearing about um, the medical applications of psychedelics, I recommend that you go back to the first podcast that I did with Dr. Fadiman in episode 19. I am all about safety when I talk about psychedelics, and just like driving a car, there are safe ways to do it, and there are unsafe ways to do it. And in episode 19, we talk a lot about safety. Uh, He also tells some great stories about his early life and how he got into this field of work. For those of you who are still on board and want to keep going straight on to chapter three, here we go. Uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman is considered America's wisest and most respected authority on psychedelics and their use. In 1974, he co-founded the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology and has since continued to explore potential medical and creative uses for psychedelic drugs. In his most recent book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys, he he provides insights into safe and correct uses of psychedelic drugs. The book was inspired by his unique knowledge of psychedelic experiences and his desire to explain beneficial uses of those substances. He received his bachelor's from Harvard University in Social Relations in 1960 and his master's and PhD from Stanford University in psychology in 1962 and 65, respectively. I'm going to read a short story from Dr. Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and then we're going to get straight into the conversation. A Vision of a Whole Earth with Stuart Brand. When I am asked, can you give me your best example of the magic that LSD can impart? I share this experience of Stuart Brand's. One session, one person, 100 micrograms. From his session, a vision arose, one that forever changed the way we look at the earth. The following excerpt, Why Haven't We Seen a Photo of the Whole Earth Yet?, is from a book, The Sixties, the decade remembered now by the people who lived it then. Edited by Linda Obst and published in 1977 by Random House and Rolling Stone Press. In it, Stuart Brand, founder, editor, and publisher of The Whole Earth Catalog, recounts his activism on behalf of the planet and how it influenced the creation of the time-honored image of the Earth from space. It was February 1966, one month after the Trips Festival at Longshoreman's Hall, when Whole Earth, in The Whole Earth Catalog, came to me with the help of 100 micrograms of lysergic acid dithylamide. I was sitting on a gravelly roof in San Francisco's North Beach. I was 28. In those days, the standard response to boredom and uncertainty was LSD followed by grandiose scheming. So there I sat, wrapped in a blanket in the chill afternoon sun, trembling with cold and incohate emotion, gazing at the San Francisco skyline, waiting for my vision. The buildings were not parallel, because the earth curved under them, and me, and all of us. Buckminster Fuller had been harping on about this, that people perceived Earth as flat and infinite, and how that was the root of all their misbehavior. Now, from my altitude of three stories and 100 mics, I could see that it was curved, think it, and finally feel it. It had to be broadcast, this fundamental point of leverage on the world's ills. I herded my trembling thoughts together as the winds blew and time passed. A photograph would do it, a color photograph of the Earth from space. There it would be, for all to see, the Earth complete, tiny, adrift, and no one would ever perceive things quite the same way again. How could I induce NASA or the Russians to finally turn the cameras backwards? We could make a button, a button with a demand, take a photograph of the entire Earth. No, we had to use the great American resource of paranoia and make it into a question. Why haven't they made a photograph of the entire Earth? But there was something wrong with entire, and something wrong with they. Why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth yet? Ah, that was it. 
The next day, I ordered the printing of several hundred buttons and posters. While they were being made, I spent a couple hours in the San Francisco library looking up the names and addresses of all the relevant NASA officials, the members of Congress, and their secretaries, Soviet scientists and diplomats, UN officials, Marshall McLuhan, and Buckminster Fuller. When the buttons were ready, I sent them off. Then I prepared a day-glow sandwich board with a little sail shelf on the front, decked myself out in a white jumpsuit, boots, and a costume top hat complete with a crystal heart and flower, and went to make my debut at the Sather Gate of the University of California, Berkeley, selling my buttons for 25 cents apiece. The dean's office threw me off campus, the San Francisco Chronicle reported it, and I had my broadcast. I kept returning. Then I branched out to Stanford, and then to Columbia, Harvard, and MIT. Who the hell is that? asked an MIT dean, watching hordes of students buying my buttons. That's my brother, said my brother Pete, an MIT instructor. It's no accident that the first Earth Day in April 1970 came so soon after color photographs of the whole Earth from space were made by astronauts on the Apollo 8 mission to the moon in December 1968. Those riveting Earth photos reframed everything. For the first time, humanity saw itself from outside. The visible features from space were living blue ocean, living green-brown continents, dazzling polar ice caps, and a busy atmosphere, all set like a delicate jewel in vast immensities of hard vacuum space. Humanity's habitat looked tiny, fragile, and rare. Suddenly, humans had a planet to tend to, the photograph of the whole Earth from space helped to generate a lot of behavior. The ecology movement, the sense of global politics, the rise of the global economy, and so on. I think all of these phenomena were, in some sense, given permission to occur by the photograph of the Earth from space. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave and you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So you have Sex at Dawn right there. Yeah. You've read the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's heavily marked. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, he, uh, Chris has a a good way of uh, distilling, uh, distilling complex subjects simply and honestly. Well, it's a, it's. As I recall, you know, reading it, one of the things that I was aware of is if it's such a cheerful, breezy, um, friendly way of describing some really very serious science. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that you have a similar way of doing that as well. <laughs> well, that must be why I like the book so much. Yeah. You, you both have a, a kind of cheerful way of going through life. <laughs> it doesn't all have to be so bad. Well, so far, so good. <laughs> well, and those are the... Uh, the different versions of ourselves that we can bring forward. Are we getting to that already? We, we could, if, you, if you'd like to. Well, I, f- I felt like it would be a good transition. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that, that I've been working on um, for about 20 years is the notion that um, we are not single selves and that there's this kind of um, unspoken agreement in the culture that we're single selves and there's also a little problem in the culture, which is everyone then gets pissed off when everybody they know is inconsistent. And they say, how can you have been so wonderful last week and this week you're so horrible? And the answer is usually, I don't know, I'm just that way. When the deeper answer is, well, the self you met last week is always that way. And the self that I'm talking to you now doesn't really agree with what that other self is like. And we alternate inside this shell like everyone else. And it either sounds very obvious, which is, are you inconsistent? And do you say things to yourself like, I don't know what got into me? Or my favorite is, I was beside myself. Who? Beside who? (laughs) Um, And 
a number of, of kind of things in the ordinary language where we're accepting that there are different selves. I can't believe I did that. Um, I don't know what got into me. So these are all very ordinary sentences which suggest that part of you doesn't quite know what part of you is up to and is sometimes surprised. I can't believe how I behaved last night when someone brought up the issue of miscegenation or anything else, you know, or uh, silver prices in, in Germany in the 15th century. You can't imagine how excited, like, I don't know why I behaved that way. Right. And the answer is the part of you that behaved that way knows perfectly well. Um, and usually there's pretty good communication between the selves. So when you say, I don't know what got into me, you have full recall of everything that happened. There is a pathology um, where you don't actually know what happened. And that's the phrases, um, I woke up and it was two days later and I was in Detroit. <laughs> and that's, that is where your selves are in such poor communication that they really do not um, let each other know. And a lot of people, for instance, who are alcoholics and they're what we would call happy drunks. And when they're drunk, they're really delighted with themselves. They think they're amusing and they are having a wonderful time. And then in the morning, this person, uh, the body wakes up with a hangover. And this person who wakes up in the hangover says, oh, I don't know what happened last night. And I feel sick and terrible. Then when it, when it gets ridiculous is the sick and terrible one goes to therapy and says, I need to stop drinking. And the fact is the one who feels sick and terrible doesn't drink. And it's why um, psychotherapy is almost useless for alcoholics. It has like a 2% success rate. So that's the kind of clues I've been following for a number of years. And a friend of mine and I, Jordan Gruber, are now doing a book on how to um, notice and harmonize yourselves. Right. Well, and one of the one of the effects of psychedelics is an acknowledgement. It can be an acknowledgement of the multiplicity of all things, right? And that that unsureness and being okay with how much we don't know and how much we don't know even about ourselves. I was um, I was having a conversation with with our mutual friend Chris Ryan the other day, and he was telling me a story about Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce Springsteen uh, struggled with depression at a certain point in his career. It was at the peak of when millions and millions of people loved him and adored him, and he was being interviewed by a woman. And she said, Bruce, did you know that uh, at the time that you were depressed, there were millions of people who wanted to be you? <laughs> and he said, you know there were times when I wanted to be Bruce Springsteen too. Absolutely. And what he was saying is his depressed self had, didn't get the pleasure of his stage self. And it's pretty common if you talk to actors that they shift voluntarily into their acting self. And one of the ways in which you see that is, um, I've known a number of actors who stutter hmm. off stage. And they get on stage and the costume goes on, the makeup goes on, and the lines are there, and they don't stutter. Now, partly it's because the person that they are stutters, but the character that they become doesn't. But beneath that is the, the actor they become. The onstage person has stage presence. And the offstage person may have a low self-concept, uh, like Bruce Stringstein, um, but that's, those are different selves. And once you see that, of course, it makes total sense. Right. It's, it's, it's hard to, to, I guess, even notice different versions of yourself from time to time. Well, one of the nice things is if you're in relationship, you will get feedback. Yes. After the first three months. <laughs> that's right. Or after the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find that usually in the first three months, you can put on a version of yourself that you really like. Right. And then it starts to creep into other versions. Yeah. And, and your partner is, is sensitive to that because you're both looking at each other's selves. Right. You know, how are we when we're really tired? How are we when we're... There's a way, you, mostly you notice that when you visit your parents... Everybody changes selves. 
Yes. And at, and at one point I was visiting my mother and I was about 50. And um, she would say things to me like, don't you think you should put on a sweater? And I would think, actually, I've been running my life fairly well, including sweaters. What is this behavior? And then I realized this is just mother behavior. And um, at an earlier time in our relationship, which was on the whole good, uh, there was a period when it wasn't. And I said to my stepfather, how do you stand being with her? An incredibly rude, horrible thing to say about one's mother. <laughs> and he said, she's only like this when you're around. <laughs> and I got back then that there was something I didn't understand about the way human beings could change. How could she be so different? And the answer is that she was so different because she had different parts of herself that were evoked by different situations. No, nothing like a family member also to evoke a certain version of yourself. Well, we, we are stimulated by outside things. Put most adults in front of a baby and their language shifts. They don't say, oh, what a very nice baby you are. You look very pretty. Um, it's, it's, you have such cute little cheeks. They go, and it's almost universal, this talk to baby language. It actually transcends a lot of linguistic differences because there is something that is evoked. Um, and I'm, I'm observing, mostly in my own family, do I talk differently to my six-pound dog? than I do to human beings? And the answer is often. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm simply been exploring the reality of that and also seeing that the notion that there's a single unified self gets in the way of observing reality. So what do you hope is, uh, is the message that you can convey given these observations? The message is that if you are actively aware of your different selves and they have different needs and different expressions that you can create a harmonious inner family and also that you can be in the right self at the right time. Mm. Um, for instance, if I'm going to give a presentation to um, a society of statisticians and then the next day I am talking to a uh, a number of people who mainly work at Burning Man. Uh, and they both want the same topic. If I give them the same speech, I'm dead. Because I'm not really paying attention to what kind of person they want to hear and what they need to be uh, feeling. And it's not fake. It's There's a part of me that um, can use psychological vocabulary pretty well, um, even though it's a jargon I don't particularly from, fond of. And there's also a kind of hip jargon that I'm fonder of, but also isn't my natural speaking pattern. But when I slip into one or the other, the, the kind of super serious scientist or the somewhat retrograde old hippie, um, they're natural. They're not an affectation. They're not um, substituting, you know, I'm not faking. I'm simply allowing a different part of myself to do the same work. Right. Are you? And you're in a, a phase right now where you're speaking to a number of different media outlets on a daily basis, and they're all um, they're all you're all talking to different ages, different right. types of people. Well, the main distinction now is because a lot of people are doing um, a lot of media groups are doing an article on microdosing microdosing this uh, using one tenth one twentieth of a full psychedelic for a, a much gentler effect and one of the questions I asked journalists is do you have psychedelic experience and mostly answers are yes by the way um, but a number are no and I simply notice I adjust what I'm saying because I'm aware that the people who've had psychedelic experience uh, we have a shared understanding and the ones who don't, don't. And it's, and it's the same for you. If you're talking to someone and you say, do you surf? If they say yes, a part of you relaxes because you have a huge body of experience that you know they know and that you don't need to spell anything out. And you can you can skip to chapter three. That's a nice way of saying it. Right. right. Um, 
and you have to but if someone says well no actually i'm afraid of water and i never learned to swim you'll find that you use different terms right um so let's skip to chapter three because i find that most people who are listening (laughs) to this conversation uh have have or are are open to it and um I like to assume that people are open-minded and and up for it. Um, so, so chapter three, where are we right now? Well, where we are is a curious revolution in psychedelic research, which is um, originally in the 60s and 50s, there was a huge amount of psychedelic research because psychedelics were fascinating and suddenly... They also came along with and got people interested in brain chemistry. So the fact is that we, we now use the word serotonin, which is a, a neurochemical, as if we know what we're talking about. But the reason we study serotonin is because it looks just like LSD with a tiny shift. And it came out of the LSD research. So that was the initial research, therapeutic, biochemical. Then there was the Great Freeze, where the United States asked everyone else in the world to to assume it was terrible and dangerous, so there was very little work for 40 years. And Mean, other, meanwhile, and everyone was doing psychedelics. Right. Meanwhile, millions and millions of people took psychedelics, which mainly gave them a disrespect for government. <laughs> and then the research is now returning because there's a whole generation of bureaucrats in power around the world who have had psychedelic experience and are not upset by people wanting to do good research. So the exciting, high-dose, far-out, trippy research is going on very beautifully with post-traumatic stress disorders and dying and alcoholism and so forth. And then quietly, kind of like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, there's people who are microdosing, and they are not doing anything interesting that you would notice. Um, they're still delivering groceries and writing computer code and gardening and raising children um, and being Air Force mechanics and so forth. But they're doing it a little better, a little more effectively, a little more gently. And a number of them are also getting over depression and migraine and some interesting things. And that may be the way psychedelics become accepted into the culture as in the no big deal. I mean, if you think about the difference between high dose and low dose, um, it's a different world. And let me give you an example. Um, and people, people say to me, well, why haven't we noticed microdosing before? And the answer is because we were excited by the flash. And the example is curious. It's aspirin. Okay, aspirin comes from a number of plants, etc. It's been a folk medicine forever. And it's available all over the planet at a dose of 325 milligrams for which it is very good for headaches and being sore and so forth and so on. It has some side effects and has some problems, blah, blah, blah. It turns out if you take a a very small amount, 81 milligrams, it doesn't affect headaches and all that stuff, but it might just keep you from dying of a heart attack. And so there's a whole other use of aspirin for older people um, where you take it every day. And it has no effect that you're aware of, but it makes your blood a little thinner and a little less likely to clot. And it's a whole different universe. And it doesn't bother anybody or have any effects that anyone notices. So it's as if psychedelics now has this, this kind of dull cousin right. who, who just kind of shows up and, and kind of eats their food and doesn't say much and goes home. But you notice they always leave the house cleaner. Uh, and that's that's where I'm working at the moment, and it's fun because the the high dose psychedelic world, after an initial round of disbelief, like how could something that doesn't lead to a far out experience have any value, uh, have now adopted it, and that's so great. I'm now finding pretty much wherever I go and wherever um, we ask people are microdosing quietly and successfully. And bring me into a, a day in your life these days. You, were, you just said that you're working with a co-researcher um, who's very good at, at compiling well, num- all of these numbers and data and, and distilling them. Well, in- I'm, I'm kind of a um, naturalistic um, researcher, which, which, which is code for sloppy which is I say to people, well, why don't you try microdosing and then send me a report? 
And they say, well, how can I use it? And I give them some very simple ideas. Take it on day one and don't take it on day two and three. And they say, well, how can that work? And I say, just try it and, and let me know. So I get a couple of hundred reports over the years. And then my wonderful co-researcher, Sophia Korb, joins me. And she said, well, why don't we measure things more closely? So she develops a protocol, a way of taking it, and also a daily check-in. So that you check off, and it takes about two minutes, 25 variables of energy and sleep and, uh, and attentiveness and depression and sadness uh, and excitement and focus. And so people then sign in. They do that for a month, and then they also write a little report. And so we did that for a while, and then we let people know we were doing it, and we compiled an enormous amount of data. Now, psychedelic research, if you ever read any of it, gets very excited because they say we had 12 subjects, and they were all chronic smokers, two packs a day for over 20 years, and they'd tried all kinds of things. And then we gave them two very high doses of psilocybin and embedded in therapy. But it's 12 people. And yes, by the way, it worked incredibly well. Um, 11 of them became non-smokers, and the 12th one moved from two packs a day to a cigarette now and then. So pretty amazing, exciting stuff. But the hard science people always say, well, that was only 12 people. Well, we closed our project of people checking in for 30 days um, at 1,700 people. So we've got this l larger group from more countries with more initial conditions and wider range of results than anybody's ever seen. And so Sophia, who invented all this, is at this very moment, as we are speaking, turning out the first level of analysis. And we presented at uh, MAPS Psychedelic Science 2017 in Oakland um, the results of our first 419 subjects, just so that we could show people a little bit of what we're doing. And so, that for someone who's been a get a report and not quite know quite what to do with it except get excited, um, this is a whole new realm for us. And it's giving us also, because we have so many people, some amazing surprises. And surprises like nobody would ever think psychedelics would be good for this. Um, and let me give you one. Yeah, please. it's not said in any of our presentations yet. But after MAPS, um, after I gave my presentation, I was in some other room listening to something. For people who don't know uh, what MAPS is, uh, what is it? Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which is the basic funding organization for a lot of psychedelic research. There's a couple of other groups, but they're the, they're the best known. And they happen to be based right across they the street. They happen to be based right in Right across Cruz. the street from where I went to junior high. <laughs> And um, I was in this presentation, and this guy asked a question whether psychedelics could help with traumatic brain injury. And the researcher did the usual research answer, which is, well, we don't have any data on that, and I can't speak about it, um, and maybe someday we'll do research, and then I can let you know. And I thought, okay. And I was somewhere else, and he asked the same question somewhere else. And I thought, what's going on with him? Why because he's going to get the same answer. So I said, why are you asking that question? He said, well, I had traumatic brain injury, and since I've microdosed, the screaming headaches have stopped. And, you know, my little eyes flashed like when you're winning at a... At a uh, Machine. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The lot, the lotto machine or right. whatever. That I know. thing in Las Vegas. Cle clearly we're not gamblers from <laughs> <Right>. Vegas. <laughs> The slot machine. The slot machine. Right. And I just kind of put that in my head is that's fascinating. And then before I left MAP several days later, two other people had told me that they had used microdosing for traumatic brain injury with some positive effect. Now, I have no theory, no understanding, and no background. But that's incredibly exciting. And so that's the kind of new study that we're opening up, is very small studies with very specialized conditions. Uh, we have one subject, for example, 
who at age 70 had a stroke. And at age, and he'd been a musician, and he'd been on the road at age 70. So he's a very vigorous guy and a very serious stroke. And he had not traveled since 2006. And for various reasons that I don't quite know about, he started microdosing. And after about four cycles, that's like every three days, he said to his wife that he would like to go visit mutual friends of theirs in Mexico. And she said... Well, I'm busy for the next couple of weeks. And he said he would go on his own, which was extraordinary. And she said, you're not capable of going on your own, just some physical problems. And so he showed her that his physical capacities had improved over the past few weeks. And both his friends and his physician agreed. And so he went off to Mexico on his own and made it. Um, And... We're following him, and the last news I had of him was his wife joined him in Mexico, and she wrote me a note and said he's no longer using his cane. Whoa. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that he, um, is, that he doesn't have a lot of, of uh, symptoms of having had a stroke, that his, the one leg that doesn't work well still doesn't work well, but he's functioning at a much higher level. Now... What I know about things like stroke is that you can recover usually most of what you're going to recover within a year. So seven years out, the medical profession basically says, we're done. So I don't know what's going on, but it's something very exciting. And that's the kind of areas that I'm now now able to explore, having kind of covered the whoever you are, wherever you are, you're welcome to to microdose and join our study. And the the more common results um, are with PTSD and with depression. Is that correct? Um, depression, definitely. Depression. Um, PTSD mixed, and certainly not the same level of effectiveness of depression. With depression, we're kind of extraordinary. How what what a large percentage of people who are taking, who, who want a microdose for depression or depression anxiety, feel enormously better. Now, what we don't know is, is there any placebo effect? And the answer, probably. But what we do know is many of these people have taken a lot of different antidepressants and failed. So in the literature, they're known as treatment resistant, which, which kind of sounds like it's their fault, which it's not. <laughs> But basically, we can say that the conventional antidepressants did not help. And to the extent that microdose is helping, that we can say pretty much for sure it's worth trying. Do you have numbers on uh, the the subjects that you've had come in with depression and have used microdosing and and gotten better as a result? Probably around 80%. 80%. Um, Maybe higher. And at one point, uh, Sophia said, well... The people who've done best with depression have been the people who are most heavily depressed. And I thought, oh, wait a moment, that that sounds a, a, kind of against common sense. And what she was saying, from a number standpoint, if, say, there's a depression scale and 10 is fantastic and 1 is, I didn't commit suicide today, but it was close. Well, the people who are 1, 2, and 3 have the most change possible. So they show the greatest change. But the people who are sixes and sevens who become eights and nines, they haven't changed as much numerically, but they move from I didn't enjoy life to life's a pleasure. And that is a, a huge change in itself. So that's the kind of thing we're exploring. And what's what's wonderful is when you put out this kind of thing, you get um, both the usual skepticism from people who do that for everything, but you also get the hard, the hard scientists in the psychedelic world that say, I think there's something there. Let's give it a hard test. So right now there's a fully developed plan in England for a double-blind study. And also there's a study with one of the U.S. groups who's also doing the first basic research on microdosing as well, which is ideal for me which is they're the people who have both the money, the time, and the federal signatures. And all I've done is say, um, look over there. 
It's kind of as if we didn't know about coconuts. And I come back and I say, there's these islands and they've got this thing that hangs on the trees that weighs like eight to 10 pounds. And inside of it, there's something to eat. And everybody says, what on earth are you talking about? That's nutty. <laughs> and I say, well, yeah, it is a kind of a nut, but I don't want to make jokes about it, but really. And, and then there's all kinds of other things you can do with the other parts of this thing that you ate the middle of. And by the way, in the real center, it's liquid. Instead of the way fruits are, which is in the middle of its seeds. And until you, but, and people say, well, you're a nice person. And, and I assume you found fairies and vampires as well. And eventually somebody goes to these islands and they say, hey, you know, that I wouldn't have noticed, but these coconuts actually are a little bit like what this guy talked about. Now let's investigate them. Right. Ah, now let's um, cultivate them. Ah, now let's make products out of them. Ah, let's now do science on why people, what's in them that makes them work so well and so forth. So you have a pattern from discovery um, to basically probably the end result is commercialization. And do you think that we're close to commercialization? Except that these substances are entirely illegal, we are. Yeah. Yeah. But, but in a... In a, <laughs> there's, in one, a there's one little thing, there's well, still ex a except, Schedule One drug. Except for the very peculiar thing is that the, the dark web where people buy illegal substances, um, I was looking at uh, two studies. One, I think, is done by The Guardian, and it has a, it, basically a worldwide drug study. And then there's just a group uh, that does a worldwide drug study. And for the first time, both groups included microdosing. And included also in the questions for hard drugs and all kinds of psychedelics and other things is where did you buy them? And what they're finding is that there's a big uptick in using the dark web to make purchases. So in England, for example, it went from like 16% to 26%. That means 26% of the people in this survey who used an illegal drug bought it from the dark web. So there's, in a, in a sense, commercialization has already happened um, because as, you know, as we all know, there's two kinds of markets, which is there's a legal market and then there's what's called a black market. And the black market is either about price or it's about legality. And most countries have both markets. And it so happens because of the internet, the dark web is a world market and a different, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure, a bunch of dissertations being written as we speak about the difference in economics of the dark web and why, for instance, they use Bitcoin, which can't be traced, etc. Um, they're just different rules. Right. But the psychedelics have been swept up in this. And in particular, now dealers uh, are selling um, microdoses because there's demand. You've uh, had a very uh, long, long life uh, dealing with people who have um, been in the, the pharmaceutical spider web. Sure. All the way from in the 60s when you were um, volunteering in, in Menlo Park with, uh, was it veterans with PTSD? And I, I don't want to butcher yeah, no, what it we was. Were, we were running a little clinic. Yes. Uh, in Menlo Park, really about an outpatient clinic. Yeah. So both PTSD didn't exist. We didn't know it. I think it was called then combat fatigue. Yeah. Shell shock. Um, shell shock and other things. And we really weren't dealing with those people at that point. Um, the point that I was trying to make is that you've, you've, exp you've experienced um, the world of big pharma for a very long time. Yeah the world of uh, antidepressants and antipsychotics. So you come at it f with um, a unique perspective. And we were chatting right before we started recording about the state of antidepressants. Um, the fact that now there are nine-year-olds who are put on antidepressants. Well, the um, I was just reading the kind of definitive book about um, research on antidepressants. And this is a man who basically, is, it's called The Emperor's New Drugs. Um, and as you remember, in the emperor's new clothes, as everybody was telling each other they could see the emperor's new clothes, except this young child who, who didn't know how to miss, how to lie, and said, but he's not wearing any. Well, it looks like from 
huge amount of research covered in this book that antidepressants um, have the same effect, which is they help a certain percentage of people, but the same effect who take a placebo or the same looking pill with nothing in it. Because there is something called the natural healing response, um, which people also misname as the placebo. And it's your body's intention to get better, particularly if you tell it there's a way to do that. And the body-mind is quite extraordinary in that way, is that um, people told that this placebo is a stimulant, will feel excited. If they're told it's a soporific, they'll get sleepy. And what's even more fascinating is if you give them a stimulant and tell them it's a soporific, they'll get sleepy. And if you give them a soporific and tell them it's a stimulant, they'll get excited. So that the mind actually overrules the actual effects of the drug. When we get to antidepressants, it looks like they have no effect at all on their own. But that they're given by a physician and they have effects, meaning you feel you've taken something and you've been told what it's supposed to do for you, seems to be their primary effect. Uh, because there's almost no difference between taking, in the same study, the same doctor giving every other patient real antidepressants and sugar pills, and the doctor doesn't know which is which, so he's genuinely saying this will make you get better, is the results are that it's a wash. So how would you open up a conversation to someone uh, who is struggling with depression and who is uh, either uh, has gone down the road of traditional uh, antidepressants or is considering going down that road? Well, again, what we know, probably although you can't quite say it this way, is find someone who'll give you a sugar pill and see if that works. Because it has a 50 per 60% chance of working. And the, the other problem with depression is we believe that it's caused by some um, differences in, in neurochemistry um, of dopamine and um, serotonin. So there are antidepressants which work on different brain chemicals and one would assume they would oper they would function differently but they get exactly the same results no matter which chemical you're shifting as the placebo so what we can say scientifically is we can't tell the difference between changing serotonin changing dopamine changing norepinephrine and doing nothing is the same percentage of people will report they feel better. So that's that's recent for me, and so nobody so far since I've been reading this has asked me about antidepressants because I'm in an awkward place, particularly because it looks like um, microdoses work better than that. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's so strange. I mean, given, given what we know about the power of the mind... And these new, all of the new research that's coming out about the the placebo effect, I think is is just kind of hurling along um, with the you know the biology of belief, how we know that our thoughts change our, our our biology, and at the same time, it's such a difficult conversation to bring up with someone who says, "No, but I am really depressed." Do you think that if I'm just going to think happy thoughts, it's going to change my yeah, life? Well, it turns out that that's among the methods. Yeah. Uh, we also know that exercise improves depression. We know that changing your diet so it's healthier improves depression. We know that surfing improves depression. Depression may not be um, attached very tightly, so to speak, to us because so many different things work. And depression's real. Yeah. Uh, when someone feels, and there are people who, um, whose depressive symptoms are se severe, and they actually do benefit more from traditional, traditional antidepressants for some reason. So if someone is severely depressed, usually I'd say, what system of medicine do you believe in? Um, because I'm sure, and I don't know it exactly, but um, there are depression points on the human body that an acupuncturist knows. They're simply places where the Chinese over the past thousand years or so of work have noticed that this point seems to alleviate depression. Have you experimented with acupuncture? A little bit, personally, and um, with some personal benefit. Yeah. Um, and at one point, 
I was doing a workshop and I had I th- some kind of terrible pain in the middle of the workshop. And it was, I had about 15 psychotherapists and I was struggling and, I, and, I, and they basically wanted the afternoon to, to work. And so during the lunch break, one of them approached me and said, I also do acupuncture. Would you mind if I did some acupuncture? So he did some acupuncture and whatever my symptoms were all went away and I finished the workshop. So that's, that's the kind of anecdote which doesn't go very far, but what we do know is that acupuncture as a system is extraordinarily powerful and effective in many, many cases. Yeah, I've had acupuncture only two times, but when they threw a needle into one part of my body, I felt this zing yeah. that went from my <laughs> head to my toe that was a very uh, new experience. Yeah, well, what we remember, the theory of acupuncture is that you have meridians or little channels of energy that go through the body, and they don't follow uh, Western medicine. And so... However, and what they say is a lot of problems are when the channel, a channel or two channels is blocked. And so when you are putting in a needle, you're basically opening the little gate in the blocked part of the channel. And if it's working, one can perhaps feel the whole channel opening up energetically. And so one might have, um, so to speak, a buzz from the top of your head to wherever the end of that um, meridian is. Right. Yeah. It, Re, um, re-questioning a lot of these these therapies that have been pushed under the rug has been uh, a new experience for me. I, f- I find that you know when you when you start to question one system, all of the other systems become quite, you, you begin to question a lot of the other ones yeah. as well. Well, the, the the scientific method is questioning everything, right? Which is what is your evidence for this? What is your, see, the evidence for acupuncture is that it works. The theory of acupuncture of meridians is harder because it doesn't fit any kind of Western theory of how the body is designed. Um, however, for instance, we know that if you um, put a, an electromagnet on certain parts of the brain, it affects thinking. So there's obviously a connection between the electrical world and the physiological world. Um, And the fact that there are different medical systems would make total sense since they arise from uh, different cultural beginnings. You know, Indian medicine, Ayurvedic medicine is strongly herbal. um, And they have a vast profusion of herbs that they've worked on again for a couple of thousand years. and therefore, probably the ones that they use for certain conditions fit modern medicine's criteria of have you run a large enough study? Right. And if it works for a large percentage of people, then probably it's a good idea. And if it harms a very small percentage of people, because for me, I'm more and more looking at what's the risk benefit ratio. See, the problem with higher dose psychedelics is that there are real risks and there are tremendous benefits. Why I like microdosing is there's unbelievably little risk and for some people considerable benefits. So I just got a letter today from someone that said, um, I took a, a high dose psychedelic some months ago and I had a terrible psychotic reaction. And then he said, but I had certain issues I wanted to look at, so I tried a microdose at 10 micrograms, and I was very jittery. So he tried, so I tried five micrograms, and I was still jittery, and I tried three micrograms. He said, now I'm taking one microgram, one-tenth of a microdose, and I'm, my thinking is clear, my emotions are good. Basically, you know, a report of someone being in, in relatively good health. And then he indicated that he was a graduate student in a a very hard science. Um, And was I interested in his report? Well, that's one of the other areas I'm looking at, which is, is it possible that a, what I'm now calling, and I didn't invent the term, a mini microdose might be effective? And we're back to the aspirin model. And the answer is, for some people, it is. And if you want to argue that it's a placebo, fine. If it makes people feel better, um, that's all. That's really the criteria right. that interests me. Looking at our medical system as a whole, what are the shifts that you would like to see moving forward that you think could help the greatest 
number of people. Well, curiously, it's totally economic. Yeah. That if we had single payer like civilized countries, we would, one, um, cut the cost of medicine and of medical treatments. We would not necessarily cut the pri- the salaries of people. We would simply cut out profits and, and bureaucracy. And therefore, more people would get medical treatment. And without changing, without any more research, without changing even improved whatever it is, we would have a huge increase in health in the United States. So that's the simple answer. The complicated answer is the system of Western medicine is just one. And it's a little bit kind of uh, medieval in a world in which there are other medical systems which are older and much more use-tested and safer uh, and less expensive. Uh, which medical system? I'm saying of both Ayurvedic, for example, yeah. or Tibetan medicine. Um, there's um, enormous number of massage techniques from places like Thailand. Um, there are herbs from Ethiopia. There's African medicine, and there's, for instance, one uh, one plant from Africa. Looks like it's extremely effective for breaking high-use, long-term opiate addiction. Um, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, very exciting. And there are clinics, again, none in the United States, because we've made the drug that helps people illegal, um, but the opiates, unfortunately, are still legal, so we're kind of curious. Um, but that's a real possible breakthrough, and it comes from uh, the country of Gabon, which um, almost even even 90% of us probably couldn't find it on the map. Yet here is possibly a, an enormous breakthrough for a particularly contemporary problem. Well, we simply need to replace Western medicine with world medicine, and that's... Um, should be a no-brainer because we're doing it in technology, uh, we're doing it in entertainment, uh, we're doing it um, in trade, we're doing it in manufacturing and so forth and so on. It should be no surprise that we should do it in medicine. So what needs to happen? I mean, you're, 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 you're obviously speaking to a, a number of different groups as you are getting this research out. And the group that seems to, to matter very much is the bureaucrats, the lawmakers, the people who will actually change legislation. Well, the nice thing about um, good medicine is even legislators get sick. And there's a curious reason why acupuncture suddenly jumped the Atlantic and suddenly became researchable in the United States. And it was a two-step process. The first step was um, a man named Reston, who was a New York Times reporter um, in Beijing, had an appendicitis attack. And he went to the best hospital for uh, that and got an operation, as we all do, for uh, his appendix and was fine. The anesthesia, however, was acupuncture. James Reston was his name. And because when you're a reporter, everything is possible and you get a headline for that, he wrote about his treatment in China with acupuncture. Now, obviously, he had nothing at stake other than a terrific story. And so all of a sudden, here was an undeniable, remarkable use of a non-Western method for a very Western for a very worldwide problem called appendicitis. That opened the gates for the research. Then what happens in the West is they, they get very desperate for theory. Western medicine seems to be very scared of just results, but they, they're very happy with theory. So they found something called endorphins, and endorphins make you feel better without getting overly technical, which I actually can't do. And... It turns out that acupuncture activates endorphins. Now, acupuncture does lots of other things, but that gave Western medicine something they could measure, they could talk about, they could count. It was a substance. It wasn't a mysterious energy of chi. And so research moved forward again, 
and now what we have is an active acupuncture sub-industry in the United States, um, like many other parts of the world. And so it changes because people who get ill are suddenly much more open. And the other problem, of course, is pharmaceutical companies have a multi-billion dollar stake in keeping things profitable. And so that's a very different set of issues, and uh, lots of people rail and rant about that, and I don't need to. Yeah. Well, um, let's leave it there for now. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're doing a million interviews these days, and uh, it matters a lot that you're making time for this. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and um, to the people who listen to you, I just am delighted that they do, and they should keep up on whatever you're up to next because your interests are wider than most uh, of the podcasts that I that I that I do listen to so thanks thank you Jim thank you so much for listening everyone hope you enjoyed the show if you want to get in touch with me for any reason head over to my website kyle.surf not kyle.surf.com just kyle.surf I try and respond to all of my emails Uh, you can also get in touch with me on Instagram If you like this podcast, please donate to it through Patreon. Um, You can click the link on my website, kyle.surf. That's how we keep this show going. If you don't have money to donate, but you buy stuff on Amazon, you can support me at no cost to you because I am now an Amazon affiliate. So the way you do that is you click the link on my website, kyle.surf, the Amazon link, and then you bookmark that and use that whenever you make Amazon purchases. And I get four to seven percent of um, your purchase at no cost to you. So that's a super easy way to support me. And it doesn't cost you anything. Also, just talking about the show, um, sharing it with friends, giving a rating on iTunes, all of that stuff helps. And I, I really appreciate all of you out there who take the time to do that. All right, I'm going to leave you with a song by one of my favorite local bands called Sourgrass, and this is a song called Flashing Lights. I will link to their band page in the show notes under Dr. Jim Fadiman's uh, page. All right, everyone, have a good day, and I will see you soon. See